appreciate the opportunity, and I'm just going to lay my cane down here. Nobody needs to pick it up. It's just there, so I remember it's there, all right? Um, it is a pleasure to be here at, uh, in Stanton, Virginia. I uh, went to, uh, lived in Lynchburg for about five years, so not terribly far from here. And I uh, uh, went to Liberty University. It was Liberty Baptist College back in those days. And we didn't have buildings. We had red clay. That's all we had. And uh, we, we, got, we wore galoshes everywhere and all those things. That you see Liberty now. That is not the school I went to. I had wonderful teachers, but uh, terrible facilities. And we met all over the, literally all over the city of Lynchburg, everywhere from the high school to the, uh, they did have some classes on campus plus everything else. So uh, I know about Virginia Red Mud. I know about uh, the Virginia accents. I know all those things. Uh, and um, anyway, it's a pleasure to be back and to be back in Virginia with you. And we're just excited about what God's doing here at Calvary Baptist Church. Um, uh, Stuart talked a little bit about you know, my age, and they call me, I'm the, I'm the elder pastor, although I'm not the lead pastor, on staff at our church, so they call me Pastor Pops. So if you want to call me Pastor Pops, I'm okay with that. Uh, the sad thing is, is when the senior ministry starts calling me Pastor Pops, that's when I get upset. Um, anyway, but you know, m- me being bald, the whole issue is I've been bald just about my whole life, uh, some 20s on. And uh, Stuart's always had all his hair, so I've always, I've always ascribed to the philosophy that God made some heads perfect, and the others he covered with hair. So, <laughs> all right, well, if you will turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. Um, I know y'all use a different translation, but uh, that's a good translation also, and uh, I enjoy using it. Um, so, Second uh, Corinthians 12, and if you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word, as soon as you find it. I know a man in Christ who was caught up in the third heaven, beginning in verse 2. Fourteen years ago, whether he was in the body or, uh, excuse me, in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses, for if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be telling the truth. But I'll spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. And concerning this, it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So, I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take your word today, and Lord, with the testimony of what you have done in my life and the lives of many others. We are grateful that uh, you truly are a God of grace that uses us in our weakness 
In Jesus' name we pray. Speak to us. Amen. The day was August the 17th, 2003. In two days, it will be 18 years. I was coming to church. I had just started a church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. We were meeting in a, a movie theater, and we would set up everything every single week and you know, take it out, and then we'd have to be out before the movie started at noon. And so we had to kind of adjust service times and all that stuff so that we could be out. And every morning, I'd drive all the way from our house, which was about uh, six miles away, and I would drive all the way to the movie theater. And, and uh, we were preaching on Joshua chapter 1 and about taking ground for the kingdom of God. I was watching a video um, that, uh, that we were going to show as a part of the illustration. If you've ever watched The Patriot, when, when um, uh, Mel Gibson's character grabbed the flag and charged forward on the battlefield. And I began weeping. I remember that. It was very powerful, considering what we were talking about in Joshua 1. It was a very powerful, moving uh, description of what it means to take ground for the, for the kingdom. And about that time, I uh, looked at my wife, and I had my headset on just like this, and I put my headset up, and I put it down, and I said, I need help. And I was sitting on the third pew, third row, and she says, okay. And I said, I need help. From this point, I don't remember anything. What I'm about to tell you is what has been told to me. And she says, uh, she said, okay, what can I do? Before she could get that sentence out of her mouth, I had collapsed and fallen on the ground. I began convulsing. All my bodily functions just released, if you can imagine. I'm not going to get into the gory details. And there I was, flopping around on the floor, turning purple grape blue uh, on a Sunday morning, August the 17th, 2003. Immediately, they thought I was having a heart attack. So they, somebody calls EMT. There's, you know, it's, it, it really became a, a horror scene as uh, the pastor of the church is literally just fighting for his life on the ground. No one knows what to do. My son, who had just taken CPR course with me and my wife, uh, got down on his hands and knees, 18 years old, got down on his hands and knees and began to give me, give me the breath of life until the EMTs got there. The whole time they're yelling, they're yelling, uh, give him chest compressions, give him chest compressions. And he says, as long as we can get air in and out, we don't give, we're not going to give chest compressions. That means something's going on, his heart's beating. Let me do what I'm supposed to do. Give him chest compressions, yelling and screaming, top of their lungs. Everybody around me at this point. Finally, they spread them out, get everybody away, kind of move them out to the lobby of the, of, of the uh, movie theater. And uh, the EMTs came in for 20 minutes. They tried to stabilize me. Could not stabilize me. They called into the doctor, said he, is un he cannot be stabilized. Uh, what do we do? They're not allowed to transport until you're stabilized. He said, well, he's gone anyway. Just bring him on in. So they brought me in. Again, remember, I'm purple from here up. Just absolutely purple. No shirt on, laying in church. Uh, and, of course, a lot of praying and screaming and carrying on going on. And this is a Baptist church, so, I mean, it was, uh, it was quite emotional. Uh, they bring me to the hospital, and immediate uh, looking at me, they said, oh, he's had a brain aneurysm. Uh, he probably does drugs, doesn't he? 
They're speaking about me who has never even smoked a cigarette in my life or done one drug in my entire life or even took a sip of alcohol ever in my entire life. And they're accusing me, and my wife is trying to explain to them that I have never, ever, ever taken drugs. You know what their answer was, of course, that you know of. Because that's what's going on. He's having a brain aneurysm because he's a drug addict. We've seen this plenty of times. We've seen this plenty of times. So my wife continued to argue. And as you know, time is brain cells. In the meantime, they had grabbed me and they had placed me in a vat of water upside down with a mask on. And I was erratically breathing. And they put me down and got my body down to about 82 degrees. Got my body down to 82 degrees. Uh, and they were all just doing it as a big experiment because I was gone anyway. That was the word. I was gone. My uh, children, of course, I have an 18, I, at that point I had an 18-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a, and a, a 7-year-old. And they just uh, don't know what's going on. My, my uh, 15-year-old had gone to the restroom and heard the nurses speaking right outside his restroom door, not knowing that what was going on with me, and, all they, all, and he heard these words, he's gone, he's not going to make it. He didn't know what to do with that. He, he couldn't even tell anybody for months after that that he had heard that, that. He thought I was gone. Everybody had said that. Finally, Dr. Blue, one of the, emer- the uh, head emergency room doctor, said to my wife, I have an idea. And he grabs my gurney, and he whisks it down the hallway. I get put in a CAT scan machine, and the CAT scan machine starts going up my body. Y'all know how it works. It like cuts you into visible slices so they can look and see what it is. And they got to this point, and there was this huge pool of blood inside of my body cavity. A pool. It was just sitting there. But it wasn't moving. It wasn't bleeding out. It was just there. He said, this man has had some type of an aortic dissection. He got up higher and realized my ascending aorta had dissected, which literally means that it had cut in half. And so the blood, there's three parts to your, your aorta. Your aorta is as big as your little finger, so everybody knows how big your aorta is. That's how big it is. And uh, so that part, it's split wide open, and it's made out of saran wrap, chicken skin, and saran wrap. He said that's the best way to describe it. He said, and the and he told my wife, he said, the saran wrap is ripped, the chicken skin is ripped, and the only thing holding the blood in is the saran wrap on the outside. Only thing. All of a sudden, my wife went back and began to think, my son would not give me chest compressions. If he had given me one chest compression, I would have bled out instantaneously. Instantaneously. That's how delicate that was. So he grabbed the gurney, ran it back down. He said, we need to call Dr. David Petersheim. He's just in from the Mayo Clinic, and he is the absolute expert on aortic dissections and on, uh, on uh, any cardiothoracic surgery that needs to be done. Let's call him. They call him, find out he's teaching Sunday school at Holy Cross Church, an Anglican church in Charleston, South Carolina, and on Sullivan's Island, and called him in, and he said, is he still alive? And they said, well, his heart is beating. We don't know about the rest. We can't tell you whether his brain is still working, but his heart is still beating. He said, 
if you will just keep him alive, I, I have done 6,000 surgeries and I've never seen one alive. Just keep him alive. So they did. They kept me in the, vet, the water and kept the heart beating. He got there. He looked at my wife. He said, uh, we'd like to try to repair it. I can repair that. I can repair that. But you do understand there's nothing left of him. He's, he's not had oxygen. It's been way over an hour. It's impossible for him to be anything but a vegetable the rest of his life. Um, he won't, he's, uh, we know for sure he's blind. The part of the brain that was affected has blinded him. He will not be able to speak at all. Um, he will never walk. He'll be a quadriplegic the rest of his life. You'll get him in and out of the bed if you are able to with a hydraulic lift. He went through the whole process. He said, but I would like to try and repair this for the simple sake of something we could do in the future for someone else if we caught it early enough. Would you allow me to do that? She said, of course. She said, do the, uh, you know, don't worry about the rest. You know, we'll take care of the rest later. Go ahead, and if you can save. He said, he has a strong heart, no issues there. So just let us do this. And she said, sure. So he went in there, cut me open, took my heart out, placed it on a table, put me on a heart-lung machine, worked on my heart outside my body for 32 minutes to repair the aorta. Put it back in my body and began the process of starting the heart back. They do it three times, and if the third time doesn't work, they quit because it, just, it messes the heart up too bad. So they get the paddles, the little heart paddles now, and they put it on my, pat, on my heart first time, nothing. Second time, nothing. He says, okay, guys, this is it. He put the paddles on, and it began to beat. Amen, amen. He sewed me back up. He looked at my wife, and she says, thank you for saving his life. And, he, and she says to him, well, let's just say that we had a good day. Let's just say that we had a good day. No way that he thought my life was saved. He thought he saved my heart, but he didn't think my life was saved. In the meantime, I'm going through something very similar to what Paul's going through in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, just so you know who stands before you, I, am, I have an independent Baptist background. I was raised in a very fundamental the Southern Baptist Church. I went to independent Baptist school. When I went to Liberty, it was independent Baptist. I, I don't believe in visions or dreams. I don't believe in all that stuff. Uh, I, I, don't, uh, you know, I don't have uh, uh, these uh, ecstatic experiences. Never had them before. But I had in my life during that time, and I can't tell you when, what I call my moment in time. When I was in the presence of Christ in a way that I cannot explain to you, I did not see any vision. I didn't see any angels. I didn't see a light that I was supposed to walk towards. I just know that Christ was there. And in that moment of time, I heard him say these words. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I heard him say, I would say to him, excuse me, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. There was no bargaining with Christ. 
It wasn't like I said, now Jesus, if you'll save me, I'll go ahead and I'll keep on doing what you got me doing. I'll, I'll continue to be a missionary as best as I can. I'll continue planting the church. I'll continue leading people to Jesus. If you just let me live and see my grandchildren and my children and my wife. That was none of that. It's thy will be done. But in the midst of that, there was also this incredible ecstasy. There was this joy unspeakable, as the Bible talks about, and full of glory. There was a peace that passed all understanding that I can ever explain to you. Because I was in the presence of Jesus. Next thing I know, which was five days later, I wake up. I'm in the hospital. Come to find out that basically people had nonstop been in the waiting room praying and singing and had to, <laughs> while they were doing the operation, the, the uh, uh, security guards came up and said, y'all going to have to quiet down in here? <laughs> Stuart, you were there, weren't you? You came later, okay. Had uh, hundreds of people in the waiting room. I don't even know where they put them. Um. I was still in and out a lot, but I looked at my wife, and when I woke up, and I said, what happened? Of course, I had no idea. None. Zero. At that point, I couldn't remember the days before. I had lost all that memory. What happened? And she told me. I woke up about two hours later, and I said, what happened? She told me. Woke up the next morning. What happened? She told me. Notice I'm speaking. They had tried three times to get me off the vent because they were, they were afraid that I was going to have to live on a vent the rest of my life, unable to breathe on my own. Third time, they did get it out, and I began speaking. And when I was awake, it was nonstop speaking. And the doctor looked at me and said, well, I was wrong about that one. <laughs> nonstop. For 72 hours, as long as I was awake, I was speaking. My poor wife had to sit there for 72 hours of Trey Rhodes speaking. Now, you know, I, I am a long-winded preacher anyway, so she was kind of used to it. But I'm telling you, you know, that 72 hours got a little over, uh, got a little tight. She said, dear God, let the man sleep. Please let the man sleep. Of course, I, I didn't have my contacts in, so I, I couldn't see. And uh, ever since then, I've not been able to wear contacts. I wore glasses just for the simple reason of it's much simpler with the issues I deal with. But anyway, so I wasn't blind. Um. She explained it to me. Finally, I began to understand what had happened. And so I'm thinking, I'm just going to get out of the bed and walk out and go start preaching again. I had no idea that I was quadriplegic. Couldn't move from my neck down. I remember them. I said, just let me sit up. Just let me sit up. Just let me sit up. I thought I was laying down because, you know, I was laying down. I was in the hospital. I didn't know I was laying down because I couldn't do anything else. And they sat me up in the, in the, in the uh, bed and, uh, you know, put the thing up, and there I go, slump, slumped right down. I said, what in the world? I said, sit me back up. What's going on here? Sat me up. Whoomp, fell again. Could not hold my body at all. At all. Couldn't move my hands. Couldn't move my feet. Couldn't feel my hands or my toes. Couldn't feel anything below my neck. Nothing. And uh, Kelly says, well, is he going to get any of that back? He said, well, you know, anything's possible. Anything's possible. But uh, maybe he'll get some use in one of his hands, we think. But that's probably it. Probably it. Probably it. We, we sense something in his right hand, but that's about it. So over the, over the time, the, they would come in, and every morning I remember him flipping my toe 
And he'd flip my toe and he'd say, you feel that? And I'd say, no, don't feel it. Feel that? No. He did this for, I mean, months. I'm in the hospital for months. And he's flipping my toe every day, every day. My physical therapist, doctor, flipping my toe. Ten days before they were ready to release me, or actually it was a week before they were ready to release me, uh, go home, basically in a hydraulic lift, hydro, you know, with those wheelchairs, unable to walk, only move one hand. He flipped my toe, and I said, I felt that. He said, wiggle your toe, and I wiggled it. The place went into pandemonium. I mean, the nurses started descending on this place, and the doctors were called in, and everybody came in, and they were amazed that I could wiggle my toe. They said, if he can wiggle his toe, he can walk. Twelve days later, I walked out of the hospital with a walker, but I walked out of the hospital, moving both hands, both feet, uh, Still very limited in what I could do. But I walked. And I told them the whole time I was going to walk out of the hospital. They didn't believe me. We said, we're not going to use that four-letter word right now. That's what they used to say. You know, and I look back now and I, I see all that I went through and all that I struggled with and all that I dealt with. And, and it was a lot of difficulties uh, that I'm not going to get into. Things that happen uh, all over your body. To this day, I struggle with. I'm not, I mean, you know, I'm not done. I feel like I'm uh, Jacob who wrestled with God and uh, the Lord touched his hip and he would walk with a limp so he'd be reminded. You know, and I'm okay with the limp and being able to be reminded of what God did for me. I'm okay with that. You know, it's a blessing to know that I went through what I went through. And before you say that what you went through was probably synapses firing, that was probably what it is, just synapses firing, stuff you knew from time gone by. My neuropsychologist uh, doctor was uh, trying to get my brain working. They would put things in front of me, and they would say, okay, there's a green shirt, a red shirt, a blue shirt, and a white shirt. And I would look at it, and then they would close the book, and they would say, okay, what color shirt did they have? And I would go, Oh, I don't remember. Maybe blue? Maybe was one of them blue? He said, yes, one of them was blue. What were the rest? And I just didn't know. Anyway, he did all that stuff for me. He did it for months in the hospital. And um, an avowed atheist. And I told him my story over and over and over again. Let it, shared the gospel with him over and over and over again. And finally, when I was ready to leave and I had started to get some of my memories back and I had started to get some of my mind back and other things, he looked at me and says, Trey, I want you to know that uh, pretty much exactly what was said in the book of Acts by one of, the, one of the kings that Paul was witnessing to. He said, you've almost persuaded me. You've almost persuaded me. He said, I can tell you because something Going on inside of you is much more profound than synapses firing or memories that are being regained. Because you had this from the first moment you woke up. So there is something much more profound that I do not understand, nor I think we will never understand, that you went through. I'm not ready to call it God, but it's certainly something above what we understand as humans. I stand before you today to tell you two things. 
Number one, you don't know. I know we say this as preachers, but you don't know if you're going to make it home today. As far as I knew, I was preaching that morning. As far as I knew, I, I drove my own car there. With, I had two of my kids with me. You know, they always helped me set up and all those things. The older guys did. And, you know, I was doing all the normal things. I had no idea that I was going to be going out of, in a stretcher purple from the waist or from the chest up. No idea. Here's my point. Be ready. Be ready. Everything, if I had died on that table that morning, everything that I had done for Christ, I didn't have time to say, bring my children in so I can apologize to them for being a jerk for the last 10 years. Bring my wife in because, you know, I treated her like dirt. Folks, it doesn't work that way. You don't get those opportunities. Thank God I had lived a life where my children would say, there lies a godly man if I had died. Thank God by his grace, which is sufficient, I had lived as a godly husband to my wife. Because I had no moment afterwards to say, if I had died, I would have had no time. I would have had no time to get my life right with God. I would have had no time to deal with any issues that, that I had left undone at the church or that person that I wanted to witness to. I wouldn't have had that opportunity to witness to him. You don't know. Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, be ready for in such an hour as you think not. The Son of Man comes. Whether he comes there or we go see him, it doesn't really matter, does it? We don't know. Every moment is precious. But I want to leave you with the second thing, and that is this. We hear Paul talking about all these things and the thorn in the flesh and the messenger of Satan and the torment that he was going through. And uh, the whole reason was so that he wouldn't exalt himself. And I know people say to, say to me and have said to me, well, you're a pastor, you're a missionary, you're a church planner, you were doing everything right. You had a, you had a godly family, a godly wife, godly children, giving their lives to Christ. You're you in the middle of a church plant. All these things were going well. And God was using you in a great way. What kind of a God do you serve? It would take you out like that. And you know what? I never felt that way, ever. I never blamed God. I never thought God was wrong. I never said, why would he, why would he, I'm such a perfect human. By the way, I don't know if you remember that little verse, but there's a little verse in the Bible that goes like this. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, except for one single word, and that is this word. But he said to me, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. It is all grace. All grace. You are who you are because of who God has made you. None of us deserve anything but hell. None of us deserve anything but hell. What shocks me is what, when they would say, why you? I'd say, why not me? Who am I? Why would I be above anybody else? It's all because of God's grace. All because of grace. And I stand before you today because when he brings his grace, he brings the power in weakness. For my power is perfected 
in your weakness. And when we are weak, it is then that His grace is strongest in us. So as you struggle today, and I know there are many of you struggling today, maybe with sickness or maybe with a family issue or maybe with a child, maybe with your finances, maybe just spiritually you're struggling. I want you to know it's then that His grace can be strongest. What we have to do and what I have to do every day is open my arms to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, I receive your grace today. You see, because God's grace is not just God's righteousness at Christ's expense, as Pastor Stewart taught us a long time ago. It's God's righteousness at Christ enabling. It is living for Christ every day, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of how difficult it is, regardless of what's going on, regardless of how people treat you. It is living for Christ and living in His grace every day and demonstrating grace to those around you. That's what it's about. So, verse 10, I take pleasure in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships. Do you hear that? How many of y'all like Chick-fil-A? It's my pleasure. That's what he's saying right here. It's my pleasure. Listen to what his pleasure is. Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. Why? For the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He couldn't get over it in verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 4. He said, For he was crucified in weakness, looking at Christ himself. For we, uh, but he lives by the power of God, for we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by God's power. It's all about Jesus and his death on the cross and his rising from the dead three days later that makes life worth living. Whether you've been through what I've been through or other issues that you're struggling with, I want you to know that His grace is sufficient for you and that grace was poured out for you on the cross of Calvary that you might have eternal life. Abundant and free. If it's not free, it's not grace. So if you've never trusted Christ as saving the Lord of your life, today needs to be that day. You need to say, Jesus... I'm going to trust you because in your weakness, you died on that cross for me. You paid the price for me. And I surrender my life to you. There's Christians here that are trying to do it on your own, trying to make it, trying to muddle through. And God, with his grace, just wants to pour out. And you just got to be open to him and say, God, I need your grace today. I need your grace. Help me to receive your grace that I might be graceful to others. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray, oh God, that you might take the, the, the preaching of your word and touch the hearts and lives of the people that you've gathered here. In Jesus' name, amen.